So on Friday, 26 November, the day after Thanksgiving, thousands of families wake up and roll out of bed with their bellies full of turkey. And they begin this joyful tradition of putting up Christmas decorations. Did you put up Christmas decorations this season? No? Our family did. In our family, we have a, have a tradition of decorating our Christmas tree together. I would go up into the attic, pull out the Christmas tree and boxes of decorations. The kids would get very excited about all the different colors, red, gold, blue, silver. Their eyes would light up as we start hanging up these pine cones and baubles. And after about two or three hours, we have a beautiful tree with all kinds of lights and ornaments. Of course, close to 3,000 years ago, Isaiah did not have a Christmas tree. All he had was a lonely stump that had been cut down by God. But out of this stump, he saw a tiny shoot growing. And from this shoot came a great king that was to establish God's kingdom and rule over all of the earth. This morning, we will dive into this famous passage from the stump of Jesse, which has been the subject of many songs and many poems. Indeed, we sung it this morning. Now, do you remember where we are? If you've joined us for the first time this morning, let me spend two minutes just to recap. We have been going through the book of Isaiah over the last few weeks. We're in the fifth and final sermon today, and we're looking at chapters 9 to 12. We've seen the book of Isaiah is prophetic in nature. The prophet Isaiah is mainly speaking judgment about Judah and Israel and their enemies, Syria and Assyria. We see, or we have seen, how holy and majestic God is. Remember chapter 6, the earth trembled. Even the foundations of the world trembled at his presence. And yet, God lowers himself to Judah and Israel and urges them to turn back to himself. At the same time, we've seen that the prophecies don't just deal with Judah and Israel, but they deal with events even further out. Specifically, the book of Isaiah deals with the coming Messiah and all the blessings that he would bring under his reign. In the first nine chapters, we saw very clearly hints of the Messiah, Passages like, unto us a child is born, right? And, and how to identify him. And finally, the book of Isaiah speaks to us as individuals. God reasons with each of us individually. And he says to us, sinners, come. Come, let us reason together. Though your skin, sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God urges us to turn to him and trust and obey him. So this morning, we're going to come to chapters uh, 9, to, uh, 9 verse 8 all the way to 12 to 6. We have a lot to cover, so I'm going to give a rough outline before we go in too deep. The overarching theme from today's passage is that God will establish his eternal purposes through his appointed king. Let me say that again. God will establish his eternal purposes through his appointed king. We'll bring this down and break it down into four uh, sections. In the first sections, we'll see 
that God hates the proud and will judge them. This is in chapters 9, verse 8, all the way to 10 to 19, and you'll see it in your outline if you have the bulletin with you. In the second section, we'll see that despite the harshness of God's judgment, He will keep for Himself a remnant, a people, a remainder that He will deliver from their oppressors. This passage can be found in chapter 10, uh, verse 20 to 34. Then in the third section, we'll see that God's promise uh, of a righteous ruler will come and establish His kingdom. We'll see that the righteous ruler is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. That is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Then, finally, in chapter 12, we'll see that all the nations will praise God when Christ returns. And I, I want you to think, as we go through this passage, how does this relate to the Christmas season? It relates to the Christmas season because we know that the birth of Christ is a fulfillment of a part of this prophecy. As we consider this passage, I want us to see that the prophecy is still being fulfilled. And therefore, as we think of Christmas, we should not think about Jesus as this helpless baby. But we must think of Jesus as the King who will one day come and return and reign over all of heaven and earth again. That's what I want us to keep in mind this morning. Now let's turn to the first section then. To set the context, remember that the original nation of Israel had been split into two. Do you remember that? There's the northern kingdom of Israel and there's the southern kingdom of Judah. In this passage, and in, in the past, we've been looking at prophecies relating to Judah. Okay? In this passage, we're going to see Isaiah start prophesying about Israel and about the Assyrians but just bear in mind for context that Isaiah is still talking to the people of Judah. He's using Israel, the northern kingdom, as an example for Judah to consider and not to follow. He's saying, look at them. I'm going to punish them. Don't be like them. Be repentant. Come back to me. And that's what Isaiah is trying to say here. So what is Isaiah warning about exactly what did the northern kingdom do so badly that they deserved punishment? We'll see in this passage in chapter 9, if you turn with me, verses 9 onwards, that the sin that God is so angry about is the sin of pride. If you look at uh, verse 9 here, the people, uh, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. The northern kingdom of Israel have a spirit of self-confidence that was grounded in no one else but themselves. The words used here refer to their own rising up, their own majesty, their own self-sufficiency. They were saying, we don't need God to help us. We can figure it out ourselves. They were saying, we'll decide for ourselves our own destinies, our own futures, and it will be better than anything that God can even provide for us. And bear in mind, God had sent them various warning signs already to turn back. This was not the first time Israel was hearing from God. But when God showed them through different signs, through warnings, they became even more self-determined to challenge, uh, take on that challenge and rise to the occasion. 
This is what verse 10 is referring to. God had knocked down bricks, but what did they say? They said, these bricks, we're going to come and we're going to build beautiful dress stones in their place. We're going to do it even better than God. And when God had knocked down their sycamores, what did they say? They say, we're going to build cedars or we're going to plant cedars in its place. What should they have done instead? We're told in verse 13 that the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. Every time they were hit by enemies, every time they were disciplined, instead of turning to God and asking, what did we do wrong? How can we repent? They instead decided, you know what? We're going to keep on soldiering on and rely on ourselves. What else do we see? We see that the sin began with the leaders of Israel, but it didn't just end there. Take a look at verses 15 to 16. We see that their sin was found from top to bottom, from leaders all the way to the orphans and the widows. We see that the elders of the nation and the prophets and teachers had led the people astray. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray. And those who are guided by them are swallowed up. But this wickedness did not just end with the leaders of the nation. We see that everyone had blood on their hands. Everyone became godless. Now we know from other parts of the scripture that the widows and orphans are especially dear to God's heart. God pities them. God loves them. But in this instance, we see that God, even in this situation, has removed orphans and widows far from himself. He will also judge them because they were similarly wicked. Their wickedness is a wildfire that goes unchecked, we're told in verse 18. It consumes everything and gets bigger and bigger and becomes unstoppable. It quickly spreads and destroys everything in its path. But as Isaiah talks about Israel, he didn't stop there. He also then turns to Assyria. He turns to Assyria and pronounces judgment on their pride. Now remember, again, in the historical context, remember that the northern kingdom of Israel had gathered with the Syrians to fight against their brother Judah in the south. And what did Judah do? Did Judah seek God for help? No. King Ahaz, you may remember, and for reference, if you wanted to look at it later on, in 2 Kings chapter 16, King Ahaz decides to go into the temple and into the royal palace and take all the gold and all the silver, and he gives it to the Assyrian king as tribute and seeks help from Assyria. And God is not pleased by this. He is very upset. And God decides to turn this helper their saviour against them and uses Assyria to punish Judah after the, the, the war. But Jude, Judah goes, uh, sorry, Assyria goes too far. Instead of working out the purpose of God and punishing them, they similarly become consumed with pride and arrogance. Let's have a look at this. In verses 5 to 6 of chapter 10, "'Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger,' The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. 
So this was God's plan. God had appointed Assyria to go and attack Judah and to punish them. But take a look at verse 7 and 8. But he does not so intend, and he does not, his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. You see what Assyria is doing? They began to be consumed by power and they decided, we won't stop at Judah. We're going to go and conquer all the surrounding nations. We are going to be a world power. Okay. Look at verses 10 to 14. Look at the number of times the words I and my in the first person is used. In verse 11, shall I not, to do, not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? In verse 12, when the Lord had finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For the king says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. By my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I will bring down those who sit on thrones. Now their arrogance is really clearly seen for us here as we keep on reading. Now, have you ever come across a nest in the wild, a nest with eggs in it? If you ever try and approach it, you'll see the birds or the, the mother bird will come down and will peck at you and flap its wing and raise a real chaotic um, disturbance to try and stop you from stealing her eggs, right? But have you seen what happens on a farm when hens are domesticated? Every morning you can go in, you can open the coop or wh whatever it is that the nest is in, and you can reach under the nest and just take out the eggs and the hen looks at you and then keeps on going with life. That's submission. That's domestication. They know that they cannot resist you because you are the powerful one here. And in verse, verses 13 and 14, this king of Assyria describes himself in that manner. He says, My hand has found like a nest the wealth of all the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the people. And there was none. There was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Who dares to stop me? The king of Assyria is saying, I'm so powerful, I'm so mighty, that my hand takes away anything that I want. And because of all this pride and self-sufficiency, God decides to punish Assyria. Assyria will suffer a blow from which it will never recover. In verses 16 to, to 19, we see that God's judgment will be swift and relentless and complete. His judgment is like an all-consuming fire that purges all unrighteousness. Now, does the story of Israel and Assyria sound familiar? Pride began in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve decided that they knew better than God. And they disobeyed him by eating of the fruit of the tree of good and evil. And we see it at the Tower of Babel. When the people said, let us make a name for ourselves instead of obeying God and populating all of the earth. We see it in so many of the kings in Israel who followed their own ambitions and followed the counsel of fools, of their peers, of their friends, instead of turning to God. And finally, 
we see it in ourselves, don't we? We see that pride in ourselves every day. I know I see it in myself. Now, you might be listening to this and saying, well, that's not me. I'm not proud. I don't go around conquering nations and building kingdoms for myself. But let me ask you this. Do you think you're the master of your own destiny? Do you think to yourself, I'm all right? I have a plan. I'm going to live well. I'm going to save. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to give away some of my money. And after all this is said and done, God is going to accept me. God has to accept me. All the good things that I've done on this earth, it has to mean something, right? But friends, this is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be outwardly boastful. You can be proud in your heart. You can refuse to turn away all aspects of your life. In the heart of hearts, you remain king, not God. And if you have not bowed the knee yet, then know from this passage that God does not tolerate self-sufficiency. As surely as judgment came to Israel and Assyria, God will also judge those who are proud. And so let us really search ourselves to make sure that there is no pride in our lives, that we are following Him and submitting to Him in every respect. Let's move on to our second section. The second section runs from chapter 10, verse 20 to 27. Now, have you ever watched a movie with a totally unexpected and surprising plot? This is what happens here. In the midst of this horrible judgment God has described that's coming to Israel and Assyria, there is a sudden plot, a sudden twist in, 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 in the event. Verses 20 to 27, we're given a promise and a glimmer of hope that is completely unexpected. God promises that there will be a remnant of His people that will be preserved and returned to Him one day. Now, I know a lot has been written about the remnant, and we can talk all day long about what it means. I think from the various passages in the Bible, we can, we can say that this concept of the remnant is recursive, it's expansive, and it's a typology. It has spiritual meaning and significance. And so while there is a lot to cover today, I want us just to notice three things that come from the following verses in 20 to 27. First of all, the remnant will repent and totally devote themselves to God. That's the first thing that we see here. This is in sharp contrast to the northern kingdom of Israel, who we see were full of pride and self-sufficiency. This remnant, while they used to trust in themselves, they will return to God and they will put their trust in Him. There is a turning around which the Bible calls repentance. Now, I'm from Australia, as um, most of you know. Have you ever seen a boomerang at work? You grab the boomerang and there's a special way to throw it. And you throw it and first it goes further and further away. It's spinning and it's going away from you and away from you. And further and further out it goes. And then all of a sudden... It takes this change in direction, and it's not a slow change, it's a complete about turn, and it comes all the way back to you, to the original starting point, so that you can catch it. And I think this is something like what verse 21 is referring to here, if you look at it. It's this turning around that Isaiah re uh, refers to, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. 
The remnant was previously going in one direction, opposite and further away from God, but now they will return. Notice this is not just a static thing. They're not just sitting there and it happens. This is an act of turning around. They are leaving behind what they have, what they had, this pride and idolatry and immorality and coming back to God. They will place their trust fully in Him and no one else. The second thing you should notice is that the author of this returning is not the remnant. It's not the remnant who goes about and saying, you know what, this morning I'm deciding to come back. It is God Himself who does the returning. It is God Himself who will bring this to pass. Take a look at verse 23. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as decreed, in the midst of all the earth. Do you notice that? The Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as He has decreed it. The people have been oppressed by their enemies and captors who have, to be, have taken them into exile, right? They're slaves, powerless to act. And the spiritual analogy is, of course, us. We are dead in our sins. We can't act. Dead men and women do not rise up and decide for themselves, I'm going to turn back to God. And this is what happens here. Their hearts are turned away from God, but God himself takes pity and acts. So what's the big deal about this then? What's the consequence? The consequence is this. Because God himself acts, the returning is guaranteed. Because God acts, it is guaranteed. It will come to pass, not because of anything that has to do with the people, not because of anything that that has to do with you or me, but because it is God who is behind it. Now imagine this. Imagine if you write me a check for $10 million today, and I take it down to my local bank at Chase and I try and go and bank it and and take some cash out, what do you think will happen? At worst, they're going to laugh at me and say, who is this, $10 million? Or at best, they're going to say, well, come back, come back in a week's time, we need to do some security checks, and if it checks out, then yes, we we will release the cash. But imagine how the reaction will be if I go in with a check that's written out by the Bank of America, what do you think the reaction will be then? They know who the Bank of America is. They will honor that check because they know that the Bank of America has standing to, to do that. They don't know who you are. You don't have a track record, but the Bank of America does. And so it's the same thing. Because God is the author of this, God is behind it, the returning is guaranteed. And this is what's so special about it. In other words, God is bankable and will bring this to pass. Now, the third thing I want us to see here is that we will see the remnant will be delivered from their oppressors. Now, take a look at the grace and mercy that God shows, even though Israel deserved judgment and punishment. With comforting assurance, he says in verse 24, Oh, my people, oh, my people. Do not be afraid of the Assyrians when they strike you and they lift up their rod and their staff against you as the Egyptians did. These are tender words, tender words that was first used in the covenant with Abraham. I will make for you a people, a nation. And he tells the people not to be afraid of their oppressors because God will deliver them. And he uses the example of Egypt. 
just as God delivered the, the Israelites from the Egyptians and parted the Red Sea, He is going to do the same in this instance, and He will remove the burdens from His people. Now, we've spent some time now talking about the nation of Israel. Before we leave this section, I want us to ask ourselves, how is this all relevant in this Christmas season? Well, the prophet Isaiah has already dropped a few clues, if you've been reading, and the next few chapters, he will deal with it directly. For example, what are the clues that we find here? Have a look in chapter 10, verse 17 and 20. Isaiah here refers to God as the Holy One of Israel. The light of Israel will become a fire, and His Holy One a flame. Again, in verse 20, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on Him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. And straight away, your, your thoughts should go to the New Testament. You might remember in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus comes to meet the man demon-possessed, what does the demon say to him? He says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. This demon, this sworn enemy of Christ, who has no business in acknowledging his deity, cries out and uses with Jesus the same description that is used of Jehovah Yahweh in the Old Testament. And similarly, in verse 20, we see that the, the remnant rely on God, but not because of His might or military power or political power or His crushing defeat. But what do they rely on? They rely on the Lord in truth. And again, straight away, this wonderful parallel should bring you to John. In the book of John, chapter 14, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus refers to himself as God himself. There is no escaping that. So now we come to chapter 11 and deal with it a little bit more head on. Isaiah here identifies a king, a king who is coming, who will establish a new reign, and who will bring into pass a period of peace and prosperity. Even though the people of God have fallen away, yet the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and he promises to deliver a people to himself. So as we turn to chapter 11 now, let me give away the punchline up front. The punchline is this, Isaiah is not dealing with an earthly king that will free the Israelites from, um, from Assyrian, uh, it's their Assyrian captors. The next two chapters are very much looking beyond his own lifetime, beyond the lifetime of Israel. Isaiah is prophesying about a king who will rule with perfect justice who will gather a people for himself from all four corners of the world in comparison to this Assyrian tyrant who, who destroys and scatters many nations. This king will bring about paradise-like conditions that remind us of Eden, that perfection which God called very good. Isaiah paints a picture of how God will totally transform all of creation, the whole world when he comes again. And as we know, living in this post-apostolic age, it is only Jesus himself who can achieve this. So again, I, I, just to simplify this a little bit, you, you know that I like signposts, so I'm going to signpost again. Four things I want us to see coming out of chapter 11. Firstly, the king will come in humility. The king will come in humility. In verse 1, Isaiah tells us, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. 
Now, Isaiah deliberately identifies this king as someone coming from, or, or as, as a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, he could have said, the king will be a son of David. This is an Old Testament reference, this phrase, son of David, that's used very regularly for that lineage of kings coming from David himself. And indeed, we know in the New Testament that um, Jesus himself was identified as the son of David, right? He could have used that phrase. But instead, Isaiah chooses to use the phrase, the son uh, or the stump of Jesse. Now, who was Jesse? Who was Jesse? My kids know this. Jesse is the father of David. But who was Jesse? Beyond the father of David, what do we know about him? Jesse was a nobody. He was this peasant farmer, this owner of sheep, lived on the hills. He came from this pathetic little town called Bethlehem. No one knew about him. Contrast that to Saul's family and lineage. They were well known. They were rich. Everybody knew where they lived. Everybody knew who they were. They were tall and handsome and had the best genes, right? But Jesse, no one knew. And at the time of Isaiah's prophecy, the royal name of David had sunk so low that the people had expected it to fade into obscurity, just as Jesse came from obscurity. And all that was left of David's glorious kingdom and lineage was this dead tree stump. And yet, God promises that out of this king, out of this weak and vulnerable family line will come his king. The shoot that will come out at first will be this little sprout but it's not going to stay that sprout, is it? Now, isn't that what we see in Jesus? Jesus did not come from a rich or well-known family. He didn't come from a world-famous hotspot like Houston. He did not go to the best school. He was born in poverty and was on the run from the very first day of his birth until his dying day. His adoptive father was a lowly carpenter, and they all lived in the redneck town. We read in the book of Matthew 2 that he is known as Jesus the Nazarene. Now, for those of you who may think this is a reference to where he came from, it is a reference to where, from where he came from, but it is also a, a phrase of contempt, right? We're told when Nathaniel first heard about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, what did he say? He said very scornfully, can any good come out of Nazareth? Can any good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was this town that was situated high on a hill, away from the main roads and thoroughfares, away from where all the action was. Now, this afternoon, my family and I are traveling to San Antonio. And because we have four little kids, we're going to have to make a few stops along the way. And as we look at the map, we try and decide where to stop. Now, of course, we're constantly eliminating all the choices of these little towns along the way in our, in our three-hour drive. And the unspoken thought is this, is this little town worth our stop? Is it worth spending half an hour here or, 30 minute, uh, or 15 minutes here? What can this place offer? Similar to Nathaniel, we, we say with a bit of disdain about each of these towns, is it worth it? And we tend to end up going to the big hot spots, the towns with the nice bakeries or the restaurants or, dare I say, even the nice buckies. I think this is what the original readers would have understood when they called our name, the Lord Jesus of Nazareth. 
And yet God takes this humility and he restores it and he builds his kingdom on it. What will this king be like? We see that he's empowered by God's spirit to establish God's kingdom. That's in verses 2 to 5. In verse 2, we see that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now, in the Old Testament, we saw God's chosen kings were given a special measure of the Spirit, right? You remember Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11, when Saul was anointed king, he was filled with the Spirit temporarily, and he went and prophesied with all the prophets. And again, Daniel, uh, sorry, David, when he was appointed, anointed king, he did the same thing. The Spirit of God came upon him. But that was all temporary. The Spirit came and went. But for this king, prophesied Isaiah, things would be different. We see that in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now, do you remember Noah's ark? When God shut the people in, it started raining. And the waters came from high, and the waters also came from the deep, and it was released. And all of a sudden, the, the ark was lifted up by the buoyancy of the water. And if you imagine, you're in that ark, in that ark, You're rocking left and right as the waters tumble. You're going back and forward and left and right. It kept on rocking. And after 40 days, the rain stopped, but it still kept on rocking because there was so much water. And after 150 days, it finally stopped and came and rested on top of Mount Ararat. And it was then and only then after a few days that Noah's family was able to come, come out because it had finally stayed It had finally settled. And that same concept of the ark settling and resting on Mount Ararat is the same word that is used here to describe the Spirit of the Lord resting on His King. There's this this idea of ceasing and of stopping, of remaining and settling down. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. The Spirit of God will rest on His King permanently. Permanently. And we're told that this King would have the Spirit of God in in a number of different ways. Firstly, he would have the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. This starts with making just and right decisions, unlike those terrible leaders that Israel had and these prophets who could be bought with money and who, who said false things. Not only would this king be a really smart person, but he would know how to apply it to rule in justice and in truth. Secondly, he would have the spirit of counsel and might. These are gifts related to accomplishing the mission and the plan. Isaiah is saying, when the king wants to do something, he will do it. It will get done. It will be executed. He will have the power and might to achieve it, unlike the Assyrians, who after a couple of generations are gone, are destroyed. And we think back in all of history. Where is Julius Caesar? Where is Napoleon? Where is Genghis Khan? Where is Hitler? Where is Mao? They're all gone, but his kingdom continues to expand and to grow. There is no stopping it. And thirdly, we see that this king will have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This shows that he would have an intimate relationship with God that is none other. He will have this deep desire to honor and glorify God himself. And with all of these attributes, he will reign over the earth with truth and justice. He's not going to make decisions that's based on outward appearance or false claims, right? We see that in in verses um, 4 and 5. He would decide with equity. 
He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. There will not be any hypocrisy that we so often see with our leaders today. And friends, there is no doubt at all who this person is. It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Luke chapter 1, the angel told Mary that she will conceive and the Holy Spirit will come upon her and the child will be the Son of God. In Luke chapter 4, we see that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit when he was led into the wilderness to be tempted. In the same chapter, we read Jesus himself as he read the scroll of Isaiah, claiming to be the Son of God himself, claiming and saying, this day, this prophecy is fulfilled. But that's not going to stop at that. Our third point in this section is that when the king comes, he will execute God's purpose and will. Isaiah tells us when this prophecy is fulfilled, the king will bring about peace amongst all creation and he will establish his own kingdom from all four corners of the world. Have a look at verses 6 to 9. We have this beautiful description that reminds us of what Eden used to be like. When God first created the world and said, it is very good, it is perfect. You see, sworn enemies in the animal kingdom will reside together in peace. The predator and prey will live side by side without fear, without war. Now, I love Planet Earth, this, this, this documentary series about, about wild animals. And you often see, you know, the prey and the predator together. Here is the leopard prowling very silently through the savannah, looking for its next kill. And here is this wild goat, sometimes eating, sometimes drinking, but always very nervous, twitching at the slightest sound, always sniffing the air to see, is there an enemy that will come out? And what do we see here? We see that the animals will actually be together again. When the king comes, he will completely restore the world order. And not only this, but when the king comes, he will restore peace between man and animals. So not just animals and animals, but man and animals. In verse 8, we see the most vulnerable of the human race, the nursing baby. The nursing baby who is completely helpless, playing over the cobra's hole without fear. What a transformation that will take place. What should this remind us of? It should remind us of the curse in Eden. Remember God's pronouncement on the serpent? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. We see here a complete 180 degrees change of events. Sworn enemies under the curse of sin will be at peace. This can't be done with just a band-aid solution. This is, this is not everyone getting better slowly and slowly and evolving over time. This has to be a complete transformation, transformation of all creation. Praise God for that. And the king will not only bring peace among nature, but he will also gather a people to himself. This is the final gathering of God's people from all over the earth. Notice in verse 11 that he will recover his remnant, the remains of his people from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea. 
Have you taken a look at the map? These aren't just random places that Isaiah is naming. These represent the four directions of the earth relative to where Israel is. Egypt and Cush are in the south. Assyria and Hamath are in the north. Elam and, and Shinar are in the east. And the coastlands are, of course, west of the sea. Right? Isaiah is saying that God's people will come from the north and the east and the south and the west. And they will be gathered from all four corners. Now notice here that the nations that are being gathered are very different. I kind of look at us here. I'm from Australia of Chinese descent. We've got friends from Mexico. We've got friends from who are, who are generations in America. We've got friends from Cuba and everywhere else. Now these people, they speak different languages. They wear different clothes. They eat different foods. They have different customs. Maybe they even tell different jokes. And in fact, they used to war against each other. They fought each other and they conquered each other and they hated each other and they wanted more from each other. And yet when the king comes again, he will gather his people from all of these nations and he will reunite them and unite them under his banner. We're told in verse 12, that he will raise a signal, that the word signal here represents a flag or a banner. He will raise a flag or a banner for the nations, and they will assemble the banished of Israel. His kingship will gather a people that will be grounded in him, not in a place, not in wealth, not in some ideological concept, but in him. In him they will be grounded. And isn't this what we see of Jesus in the New Testament? Wasn't that his mission? What did he say to his disciples when he left? And his final words to him and to them in Matthew 12 was this. Uh, sorry, 28 was this. Go, go and make disciples of all nations. Of all nations, go out and gather them and return to me. Similarly, we see in 1 Peter 2 verse 9... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Whose possession? Well, Jesus' possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, friends, before we leave this section, it's worth spending a minute to think just how different these prophecies are compared to how the world sees Christ today, especially during this Christmas time. Now, during these evenings, our family likes to go out for a walk and we'll walk around our neighborhood and inevitably you see Christmas lights put up. And there's, of course, Santa and the reindeer. Some of them will have, I don't know, all kinds of animals. And some houses will have nativity scenes. And, and trust me, I'm not against nativity scenes. We have one inside the house. I think they're great teaching aids. But I think it's important to remind each other that this is not about, this is not the point of Christmas. The Bible spends so much more time talking about the majesty and the holiness and the kingship of Christ than its birth. The Bible doesn't want us to romanticize and idolize his birth. Instead, we would be much better Christians if we kept focus on his mission and what he's accomplished and what he will one day accomplish when he comes again. Isaiah moves very quickly from this little sprout that's coming out of the stump of Jesse 
into thinking about and talking about the king and what he is to be established. And so even as we rejoice at his birth, and it's not wrong to do that, let us also not lose sight of what he came to do and why he came to do that, which is to call a people for himself. Now let's turn our eyes to the future. When all of these prophecies are finally and fully fulfilled, we will all be singing a new song. We close this morning with a look very briefly at chapter 12 at what will happen when the earth experiences the full fulfillment of these prophecies. We see here in chapter 12 two songs of trust and hope and exaltation. And firstly, in verses 1 to 3, I want us to see that we have a song that is sung from the believer's own standpoint. And friends, if you are called, if you are His this morning, if you have put your trust in Him this morning, this is your song. This is your song. Notice the first person language that's being used here in chapters 12, verses 1 to 3. Look at, look at the references to I and me. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, and that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. The believer will recount their former state and how they deserve God's judgment. But God has turned away His anger and provided love and comfort instead. And while the believer previously trusted in themselves, now they rely on God and Him alone. He is their strength. He is their salvation. He is their joy. Similarly, in verses 4 to 6, we have a very similar song, but its focus is outwards. It's a series of calls for the people to praise God. It's, in fact, very gospel-centric. And, and again, it should reflect our hearts if we truly are in Him. The believer's desire is to tell all the nations about God. They will tell everyone about their joy and their their. They will want to praise His holy name. And this is the attitude of the believer. Notice in verses 4 to 5, their joy is to give thanks to the Lord and make known His deeds amongst the people. Now, friends, it's good to be reminded that this is the state of all those who are in the kingdom of God. There will be a day when every nation and every tribe will gather together again to sing God's praise. Now, as we conclude, let me say this. What we saw today in the prophecy of Isaiah from chapter 9 to 12, there are essentially two messages. Firstly, if you have not submitted to Jesus' rule and kingship, if you still live your life as if you're your own king and you still live your life thinking you can do whatever you want, whenever you want it, then remember Isaiah's message is that God hates the proud. And God hates those who think that they can be self-sufficient. If that is you, then I urge you to turn to him. Jesus did not come to stay a baby. He grew up. He went to the cross. He died and he took on your sins so that you could be reconciled to God. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And now he is establishing his reign on earth as in heaven. We're told in Philippians 2 that even though Jesus humbled himself and took on human flesh, he did not stay in this lowly state. 
Instead, God has exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, a name that every, name, uh, every knee will bow down to in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And so if you have not submitted to his kingship yet, the Bible's message to you is that one day you will. You will submit. The choice is yours, whether you will turn to him now and serve him joyfully or be forced to turn to him and bow down to him in condemnation. But if you're listening to this, and you have submitted your life to Christ, and you have repented of your sins, and you are living for Christ and wholly leaning on Him every day, then your message is one of assurance and of hope and of peace. There will be a day when Christ will return, and He will completely transform the world, and He will gather up His people again. His plans will not be thwarted because it doesn't depend on you or me or other men, but because it depends on Him. With His promises we can boldly sing, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Amen.